Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. This weekend's message is from Tyler McKenzie. He's the lead pastor here at Northeast. Uh, that being said, I'm asking you to stand with me if you're able. Uh, if you're not able, that's okay. Uh, you can remain seated. Uh, just allow your heart to be in a posture of, of listening and receiving uh, because we're going to start our new sermon series off today by reading from the Word of the Lord. Luke chapter 1 and Acts chapter 1. We'll begin with Luke. Uh, Luke writes, Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. That's Luke's introduction. Here's Acts, Acts chapter 1. In my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day. He was taken up to heaven after giving his chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. During the 40 days after he suffered and died, he appeared to the apostles from time to time and proved to them in many ways that he was actually alive. And he talked to them about the kingdom of God. Once, uh, when he was eating with them, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John baptized with water, but in just a few days, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So word of the Lord. You can be seated. Thanks be to God for all of his word. Thank you for standing. Now, uh, today we start off a brand new sermon series on the book of Acts as you expected. And for those of you who might be Bible newbies, let me sort of situate Acts for you. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the first four books of the New Testament. They're what we call the Gospels. They're the story of the life of Jesus, starting with his birth all the way to his death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven. After we read those four stories, though, if you're like me, you're left with the question, what now? What comes next? And that's where Acts picks up on the story and shows us exactly what comes next. Not the birth of Jesus, but now the birth of the church, us. It's our origin story, if you will. Uh, if you uh, remember this, uh, back in the last series uh, we preached, I gave this diagram for you that maps out the last days of Jesus' time here on earth. And the gospels hand the baton off to Acts at this point in time in human history. Again, the Gospels show us Good Friday, the resurrection, the 40 days after where the risen Jesus appears, and then finally uh, he ascends into heaven, and that's where the Gospels end. Acts picks up with the risen Jesus ascending, and then we get to see the next 10 days, the Holy Spirit comes, the church is born, and it's really a fascinating uh, story. Now, I believe that this cultural moment we find ourselves in right now is a moment that we need Acts. The story of the birth of the church. Because we are living in a moment right now where the church, especially the American church, is under siege. Uh, every day, folks are calling out things that are wrong with the American church. I can be sometimes the loudest voice box from this stage. 
of issues that we should be taking with the American church. We want to create a different sort of church here at Northeast. We want to redefine church here at Northeast. And when I do that, when I criticize the way the church is in our country, I want you to know that my reference point for who we should become or for what we should restore is in fact this. It's Jesus and the church of Acts. Why Acts? Well, we see in Acts a church led by Jesus' closest friends who knew him best, spent three and a half years with him. They knew what Jesus wanted better than any of us, right? And in Acts, we see the Holy Spirit involved in the birth and growth of the church like pretty much no other time in history. It's incredible, and so we look there and take our cues from it. If Acts is the golden age of the church and we want to become a, a golden church, if you will, then we must look to Acts uh, to take our cues. Uh, so to summarize, uh, this would be a good diagram of kind of how the series is going to work it out, uh, work itself out. We're going to look at the ancient church, and we're going to see how modern issues map onto the ancient church. So we'll basically live in this series at the overlap between those two issues. It'll be a lot of historical drudgery. It'll be a lot of relevant questions. And, well, if you don't like the historical drudgery stuff, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you, like, there's lots of other churches in Louisville. Okay, now, uh, uh, t t t for example, here's where we're going today. Here's what we're going today. Acts uh, chapter 1 and Luke chapter 1. We just read them. They're the introduction to Acts. They're going to show us Acts' author, Acts' um, Acts's audience. It's going to show us Acts' uh, purpose, if you will. And we're going to allow that to map onto this modern-day question that I think is one of the questions of the hour for people, not just outside the church, but also in the church, and that is this. Can I actually trust the Scriptures? Can I, can I really trust what's written therein? And my hope is to show you that the intro to Luke-Acts is one example of many throughout the scriptures that lends credibility and trustworthiness to the Bible at large. Now, we are living right now in a moment of, of Bible insecurity is what I would call it. There is tons of uncertainty around the Bible in our age. In fact, uh, we're being told today that if you embrace all of what scripture has for us, then you're actually on the wrong side of history. Have you heard this? There's like this, this cultural shame, scorn and, pressure, scorn and pressure, where if you, you, believe, if you believe the Bible, you're on the wrong side of history. I, I can actually remember the time when I was younger uh, where Christianity wasn't necessarily, uh, it wasn't necessarily the, what the majority, it wasn't popular, if you will. A lot of people had a Christian consciousness, a collective Christian conscience, but very few people actually lived radically for Jesus when I was younger. So if you lived radically for him, it was considered to be a bit strange and a bit weird, but it wasn't considered to be bad or evil. But fast forward 30 years later, and it feels like quite the opposite. It feels like if you embrace all that scripture has, people see you as the problem. Now, I, I'm of the per personal belief that if you embrace uh, biblical orthodoxy, then not only will you be canceled by the right, but you'll also be canceled by the left as well. There are things about uh, biblical faith where uh, you know, the left will cut you down and quit. There are things about biblical faith where the right will do the same as well. And you'll find yourself politically homeless and without a tribe. And that can be a little bit scary. 
So what do we do? Ain't none of us want to be canceled. Well, for many of us, we allow either the shame of it or we allow our pride, you know, to kind of well up in our heart. And what happens is we push off of biblical orthodoxy and instead we embrace what I would call tribal orthodoxy. What's tribal orthodoxy? We basically just embrace tribe over truth of the scriptures. And don't you see it? Don't you see it? Many people are leaving behind parts of scripture that are important and clear so that they can fit in with a certain tribe, either on the left or on the right. And thus, when we see this happening to our friends and to churches and to leaders, it creates an element of biblical insecurity. We too become uncertain. Right? Now, to make matters worse, if you were like me growing up, you had questions and, and you, know, you, you had doubts and stuff, so you ask. You ask those questions to maybe a pastor or a spiritual mentor or a parent. And here's how that conversation usually went. Not well. Um, it would go something like this. I, the, the scripture, I, I just, it's, this is it's a hard. There's lots of stuff in there that I find hard to understand. So how do you know, how do you know that, that we should trust the scripture? And they would say to you, well, because it's God's word. And you say, okay, well, I get that we believe it's God's word, but why do we believe it's God's word? Well, because the Bible says so. Okay, I get that the Bible says so, but how do you know you can trust the Bible? Because it's God's word. Right, but I know we, we believe it's God's word, but how do you know it's God's word? Because, because the Bible says so. And around and around and around it goes. Now, do you get, some of you get it. Do you get the problem here? That's not a very good argument. We need to stop using that argument because that's circular, it's circular reasoning. Imagine, if you will, um, you know, you had a, a Muslim neighbor and they come up to you and said, uh, you should believe the Quran. And you're like, why? And they're like, because it's God's word. And you're like, how do you know? And they said, because the Quran says so. You would want more than that, right? In the same way, you should want more than that when it comes to the Bible. You should want to see why it's trustworthy. You should want to see why it's reasonable and beautiful and transformative. And more importantly than that, you should want to see if and how it accurately depicts this wonderful life of the God-man Jesus. And that's my goal today. My goal today is to show you that it is in fact trustworthy by giving you just one example. Again, the introduction to Acts. Hopefully that'll push us all in the right direction. Are you ready? Historical drudgery right around the corner. Get your pens and pencils out. All right, let's start with Acts chapter 1, verse 1. And I want to read the, these first verses to you again. Our, our author writes, in, and again, this is the first verse of Acts. It says, in my first book, I told you, Theophilus, about everything Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after choosing his apostles uh, further instructions, or after uh, giving his uh, chosen apostles further instructions through the Holy Spirit. Now, would you read those first four words with me real quick? Just read these together with me. In my first book. Stop. Very good. Okay. In my first book. Quick question. What first book? I, I already hear some of our Bible scholars shouting it out. Luke. That, that, that is correct. There is a first book. Apparently, it's a first book about Jesus and the things that he did up until 40 days after when he ascended. And the scholarly consensus is that that first book is Luke. Or said differently, Acts and Luke aren't two books. They're actually one book or one story with two volumes. Now, why do we believe that? Does anybody know why? Well, it's because Luke and Acts actually have a common audience. Uh, quick slide right here. You can see in Acts, we see that the audience is this, uh, is this Greek man named what? 
Theophilus. Very good. You pronounced it well. I wanted to see who would trip over it. You did good. Um, and then in Luke, in Luke 1, we see also that the audience is who? Theophilus, right? So it's written to the same guy. Again, one story, two volumes. Now, we'll talk more about this fellow Theophilus here in a second. Um, but while we're in Luke, I want to read to you again Luke's introduction. Because Luke's introduction actually lays out for us in very clear terms what he's trying to do in Luke X, right? So here's Luke's intro. The numbers are mine for the record. I put them in there because I think the thought flow goes in four points. So we'll just kind of flow through it. First, Luke 1, verse 1. Luke's kind of a nerd here, so imagine a nerd. Um, Luke writes, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Quick pause. Or in other words, Luke says, there's lots of stories circulating around about Jesus. He's trending on Twitter, if you will. And it's hard to sort through them all. It's hard to know how they should be appropriately theologically and chronologically ordered. It's hard to know the veracity of all of them, right? Lots of stories going on with Jesus. Also, back to our slide here, second, he said, they've used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. Or quick pause, in other words, Luke says, my source material is good. I'm not getting the stories from random Ron or obscure Olivia. Made that one up just now. I'm not getting from, I'm getting them from the, the actual disciples, the folks who, who knew Jesus best. They're trustworthy. Now, which disciples did Luke Acts get its material from? Well, again, we can't be totally certain, but I would suggest to you that there are two disciples that play a key role we can be pretty certain of. One is Mary, the mother of Jesus. How do you know that, Tyler? Read Luke 1 and 2. Just read on. Okay, Luke 1 and 2 is, is Christmas. It's Christmas time. It's snowing. Santa and his reindeer. All, no, I'm just kidding. There's no Santa, in, but, but it's, it's Christmas. And if you read Luke's Christmas story, then what you get is some very intimate and personal details about Mary's pregnancy that you could not have gotten otherwise if Mary didn't authorize and validate it. So either Luke sat down with, with Mary and got to chatting about some of this, or Luke sat down with somebody who sat down with Mary and he got some source or, uh, material straight from her. Here's another one. Lots of people believe that Paul was majorly influential on Luke. That makes a lot of sense if you read Acts. Because who's the star of Acts? Besides the Holy Spirit, of course. Paul. We see Paul converted. We see Paul's three missionary journeys. We get to follow Paul around a lot. So here's his sources. He's like, my sources are the earliest disciples. You can trust what's going down here. Back to our slide here. Third thought. Now, having carefully investigated it all from the very beginning, I also have decided to write an What's that word? Accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus. Or in other words, accuracy is one of his goals here. He's like an investigative reporter, if you will, a detective. And he's taken the source material, he sifted, it, uh, sifted through it, all you little Theophiluses, and he's, he's now delivering it to you as best as he can, accurately. And last, fourth, back to our slide, He's doing this, this is the real purpose of it. He's doing it so you can be certain of the truth. The truth, the truth of everything you were taught. The truth of Jesus. Now, now why, is this, why is this so important, by the way, for Luke? 
If you read on, Luke is like 24 chapters, Acts is 28. This is a lot of writing. It would have taken years of his life to gather all this together and write it. Who cares? Why go there? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because Luke believed Jesus was worth it. And this is important to understand in the authority structure of the New Testament and of the Bible in general. We don't believe in Jesus because of the Bible. You know that, right? We believe in the Bible because of Jesus. We don't still read the Bible or uh, we don't still talk about Jesus today because he's in the Bible. We still talk about the Bible today because it tells the story of this great God man, Jesus. Luke doesn't write Luke. Luke does not write Acts if it's not for the greatness of this man. Let us be clear. So in summary here, here's what we've learned so far already, like 10 minutes of historical drudgery. Are you with me? Are you at all interested in this stuff? If you're not, hang in there. Only like 20 more minutes. Um, uh, here's where we've been. First, we've, we've already established Luke, Acts is one story, two volumes, important to note. And second, we've established that Luke, Acts is eyewitness testimony from Jesus' disciples investigated and compiled accurately to engender confidence in the truth of Jesus. This is what Luke's aiming at. And this is a huge, huge practical point here, y'all, because what we can say is this, at the very least, at the very least, our author is at least trying. He's trying to report what actually happened. This is not myth. This is not legend. He's not trying to just make things up and shoot from the hip. Now, let me give you a few more examples of this. Luke chapter 3. Okay, um, Luke chapter 1 and 2 is, again, Christmas. It's the birth story of Jesus. And then Luke does this interesting thing. He fast-forwards from baby Jesus all the way to 30-year-old Jesus. Just wham. We get a quick stop at 12-year-old Jesus. Hi. And off. We don't get any toddler Jesus, no adolescent Jesus, no young adult Jesus, none of that. Just straight to 30-year-old Jesus. And since it's such a great time leap in Luke 3, Luke actually reintroduces the story. He... uh, he, 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 he kind of dates it, if you will, and gives us the historical situation once again. So here's his second introduction, Luke chapter 3, verse 1. I want to read it to you. You tell me if this sounds like a myth to you. Um, verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip ruler of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias ruler of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, It's at that point, the word of God came to John the Baptist, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and off we go into the ministry of Jesus. Now, um, quick question for you. Why does he go to such great detail here? Why all the names that you probably can't pronounce, right? Why? Why? Well, because this is how they dated things in the ancient world. Did you notice they didn't have like the BC, AD, CE system? at this point. They dated things based on the leader in charge. And Luke goes above and beyond to give us like all of the leaders in charge from the top to the bottom to the temple. This guy's in charge there and there and there and there and so on and so forth. Now, some people will push back at this point and say, Tyler, that's true. Um, I get it. But uh, couldn't this be something like just like historical fiction or something? I've read books that sound kind of like this. Well, No, the answer is no. That's actually impossible because historical fiction as a genre wasn't created until the 18th century. 
Okay, well, I get that. So, Tyler, another question. Couldn't this be something like, like a myth or a, a legend? You know, like those sort of things were around back in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, right? Well, yes, they were. Lots of legends and epic poetry and things like that. But have you ever read it? Okay, the answer to that is actually probably yes. In high school world lit or in college world lit, you probably had to read some ancient Greco-Roman literature. Unfortunately, you don't remember. You probably got on spark notes for the answer. It's cool. But I love that stuff. I loved epic poetry. I love Homer. And we're not talking about the Simpsons here. We're, talk, we're talking about like the Homer, right? So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to do you a favor and I'm going to read you some Homer in church. We're going to read the introduction of Homer's Odyssey. We're going to read the introduction of Homer's Iliad. You guys know, okay, Achilles, Brad Pitt, Troy. You know them, okay, now the ladies are with me. This is the movie. This is, yeah, we're gonna read. I'm gonna read you the introduction of both of them and then I'm gonna read you Luke's intro again and you tell me if they sound like they're in the same genre, if you will, or if they sound like they're trying to do the same thing. Are you ready? Some of you are like, did I come to church today to read Homer? Welcome to Northeast. Okay, Homer, the Odyssey. This is how it begins. Tell me, O muse, of the man of many devices, who wandered full many ways after he had sacked the sacred citadel of Troy. Many were the men whose cities he saw and whose mind he learned. I, says I, it's awesome. I, and many the woes he suffered in his heart upon the sea, seeking to win his own life and the return of his comrades. Okay, that's the Odyssey. Let's read the Iliad. Sing, O goddess, the anger of Achilles, son of Peleus, that brought countless ills upon the Achaeans. Many a brave soul did it send hurrying down to Hades, and many a hero did it yield a prey to dogs and vultures. There's the Iliad. Now, let's read our good nerdy friend Luke's introduction once more. Having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, Theophilus, I also have decided to write an accurate account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. You get it? Do you get it? You don't have to have a PhD in, in, in ancient literature to get it. It, it seems, I mean, it seems pretty clear to me. They're trying to do different things. This is not myth. This is not epic poetry. This is not legend. Let me give you a couple more examples. Uh, on the screen right now, you will see an indexed list of all the places mentioned in Acts. Thank you, Mark Moore, for indexing that for me. Um, and I want you to see how voluminous it is. There's a lot of places there. And I want you to know the reason why there are so many places is because Paul is a traveler. He goes on three missionary journeys. He goes around the Mediterranean Rim. So, so we get to see lots of, lots of places that, that he visits along the way. And you should know that all of these places match up with really incredible accuracy to the actual geography of that time. Here's another index list for you. These are all the names, the people of Acts. Thank you again, Mark. And I want to teach you a nerd word real quick. Again, lots of names here, but I want to teach you a nerd word. Repeat after me. Uh, say, onomastics. Very good. Any onomasticians in here? I don't even know if that's the right way to say Any? Okay, so onomastics is actually the study of proper names. Yes, some scholars give their life to this, all right? And, um, 
And basically the reason why this is even at all relevant to our conversation right now is because we can actually take the names of the New Testament era and try to date them and see if they fit within the time in which it was written. Okay, so let me say it like this. Some of you aren't following. Um, I didn't explain it very well, so okay. Here's, here's how I would explain it. You should know that, that depending on what time and place you are born in, people name folks differently than how they did like 100 years before or 200 years before or even 50 years before. If you are a grandparent who has millennial children and thus babies named by millennial children, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Let me give you an example. Uh, I read an article this week on Google called 25 Baby Names That Grandparents Think Are Way Too Millennial. Let me read them to you. Uh, this is just a few. There's Lark, Oak, Katniss, <laughs> Dresden, Breeze, Dynasty, Sable, and Saffron. Now, the reason why this list caught my eye is because my daughter's name is on it. Um, I ain't salty, right? And, and, and because it proves the point really, really well. Rewind 50 years, rewind 100 years, 200 years, you ain't gonna find a kid named Sable or Saffron, right? Okay, so how does the scripture measure up then? You would think if, that the, if the scripture was, was written like in the third century rather than the first century, we'd find some anachronistic names. We'd find some names that were supposed to be second century names that like slipped into the early first century or something like, or some names that were supposed to be fifth century names that when it was redacted, slip into the first century. Well, there's this UK historian named Richard Bauckham uh, who actually does this study for us, and this is what he tells us. He says, we know the names of as many as 3,000 Palestinian Jews who lived between 330 to 200. 28.6% of the women bore the name Mary or Salome. Those sound familiar? Yes, because like the Bible has all the Marys. Um, then 15.6% of the men bore the names Simon or Joseph. Names like John, Judas, Eleazar, and Jonathan were also very popular because these were names of Hasmonean heroes. So what's the point? The point is the names from the Bible actually match the names of the Greco-Roman Palestinian uh, area from that time, from that era. And why does that matter? Well, to some of you it doesn't, but it just shows you that perhaps, perhaps Luke is trying to give us something that's an accurate representation of the truth that engenders confidence in the story. Right, let's wrestle with another name, Theophilus. Back to him, kind of an important name. He's the audience of both Luke and Acts. But who is he, y'all? Does anybody know who Theophilus is? Very good. The answer is no. We don't, we're, not, we're actually not very sure. Uh, but quick rap sheet on Theophilus. Uh, we're not really sure who he is. Uh, you can throw that slide up there. But what we do know is that his name, Theophilus, means God lover. And that scholars suggest a variety of different uh, solutions to who this might be. Could be a more general audience. God lovers, any friends of God in here? Could be the name of a church community. You know, like the early church planners got together and they're like, we should name the church. What should we name it? We should name it Elevation. We should name it Momentum. We should name it Reality Church. We should name it some sort of point church or a directional arrow on the compass. No, 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 no. I know we should name it. We should name it the God Lovers. Okay, this is how the thought process is. For all the pastors in the room, you're laughing. Okay, um, 
Or last, this is what I believe is most, most probable. It could be a, just a specific individual. Perhaps a prominent one, because Luke does in fact call him in Luke 1, uh, most, uh, most honorable Theophilus. That's what I believe. Here's what we know for sure, though. We know Theophilus was a known. Here's some more onomastics for you. It was a known name during this time. Josephus, uh, Jewish historian, actually writes for us, check this out, that from the year 37 to 41, the immediate decade following the resurrection, the high priest of the temple was named, anybody? Theophilus, son of Annas, perhaps the most powerful, influential, and wealthy family in the land of that time. Now, I'm not suggesting that Luke Acts was written to this, this prominent leader. Could have been fun to think about. I'm just showing you that Theophilus was a name from that time. Now, uh, one more name that we have to wrestle with here, and then we're done with historical drudgery. Are you still with me? Elbow your husband. Wake up. Okay. That's how you get people's attention again. Just like a really awkward silence. They're like, what just happened? Did he faint? Like, okay. So, uh, all right. Last. Our author. The author of Luke Acts. Who that? It's the last name we got to cover. So who's our author of Luke Acts? Anybody? Okay. So, yes, it's, it's largely believed by scholars to be Luke. Now, real quick, just, you know, you, the Bible nerds that are out there, give, give everybody else the quick chapter and verse reference um, for where you can find that Luke's the author. Go ahead. Just shout it out. For all of you who remain silent there, you would be correct. Because in fact, there is no verse or chapter in Luke, in Acts, or anywhere in Scripture that tells us that Luke is the author. Now again, it's largely accepted by modern scholarship that a guy named Luke wrote it. And there's lots of reasons why. Here's your quick rap sheet. I don't have time to go through them all. There's internal evidence like the we passages in Acts, external evidence like early church fathers, old, di- old guys from the second century, or, or ancient book culture. But that's not the important piece for me. The important piece for me is what we know for almost certain about Luke. And that's this. We know that this this Luke, whoever he was, would have had to raise or spend a tremendous amount of money in order to get this copy of Luke and Acts produced and out. It would have cost a lot, y'all. It would have cost a lot in an ancient society where about 99% of the people lived below the poverty line. Money was not easy to come by. There was the 1%, there was no middle class, and there was everyone else. This was a society that did not have a mass printing press. This was a society where only about 10% of people were actually literate, and an even smaller percentage of that could actually write. And an even smaller percentage of that were skilled writers who could write in a legible way on a scroll that made an efficient use of it so that people around the empire could read. It would have cost a lot to pay the sort of scribe to write to write two volumes like Luke and Acts. Uh, Capes, Reeves, and Richard, three New Testament scholars in uh, a book on Paul's letters, actually estimate how much in modern terms it would cost to write some of them. Uh, they say 1 Corinthians could have costed around $2,100. Galatians, $700. 1 Thessalonians, $500. Little itty-bitty Philemon still would have cost like 100 bucks. And get this, Luke, Acts dwarfs all of them. It makes up over a quarter of the New Testament. So my point is this, it would have cost Luke and whatever patron was behind him hundreds upon thousands upon thousands of dollars to get just one copy of these two volumes out and circulating. 
and yet he thought it was worth it. And apparently other people, as they read it, thought it was worth it. Because over the next decades and centuries, hundreds upon thousands more copies of Luke and Acts and the rest of the New Testament documents are made in different languages, circulated around the entire Roman Empire because people wanted the truth of the story of Jesus to make its way to the empire. Didn't matter the cost. Money was just an instrument to something far more important. And that was getting the story of Jesus out. All right, we are out of time. So, so quick review. We're just gonna have to skip the codex part, sorry. Um, you don't even know what I'm talking about, but, but we're just gonna skip it. Okay, here's your review. Here's our historical drudgery. Note takers, screenshot it here. Uh, first, we've learned today that Luke Acts is one story, two volumes. Uh, second, we've learned that it represents eyewitness testimony from the original disciples. Third, we've learned that Luke compiled it so Theophilus may be certain of the truth. Fourth, it's not historical fiction or myth. Fifth, the places listed are extensive, accurate, and also the names listed are chronologically fitting. We've also learned that it was copied multiple times, even though one copy would have costed thousands. And what we didn't get to learn today, Google it, is that Christians led in book technology, the codex, to circulate their documents together. Pretty fascinating stuff. Now the question is why though? Why would, you why would you make us suffer through all of this, Tyler? That's not very nice. Why drag us through all the historical drudgery? Well, for one, because there's a handful of people in here, not many, that actually enjoy it. And two, because I think it is an amazing example. Acts 1 and Luke 1 are an amazing example of just how trustworthy this library of sacred texts that we have are trying to be. In fact, I would suggest to you today that scripture is at the very least worthy of your consideration. And at most, it's worthy of your trust. And that's my challenge question for you practically today. Do you trust it though? Do you trust it? What is the authority in your life? Where do you look? What voices do you listen to to shape your moral vision or your cultural imagination, your beliefs about right and wrong? You know what I found? I found that the human condition isn't to look to something like scripture, but instead it's to look to what is culturally resonant and personally resonant. What's culturally relevant and personally relevant. What my tribe believes, like the, the popular beliefs around me, the popular voices around me, and what my heart tells me. And it oftentimes that can lead us to degrading orthodox biblical faith, all the scriptures. Um, I, I'll give you just a few examples. This is a picture of Thomas Jefferson. You'll recognize him, third president of the United States of America, author of the Declaration of Independence. And this is also a picture of his Bible. Check this out. And uh, as you can see, his Bible is all cut up. Jefferson was a deist, he was an enlightenment thinker. So he didn't believe in miracles. So you know what Jefferson did? Took his Bible and he just cut all the miracles out of it, including the resurrection. Pretty sad book, in my humble opinion. But miracles weren't culturally resonant or relevant for his time. Didn't fit his cultural moment, so he just created it on his Bible. Here's another example. This is a picture of a slave Bible. Uh, you can find many of these in museums around, 
our country. This particular one is in the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. This is what the Museum of the Bible says about it. It writes, a typical Protestant edition of the Bible contains 66 books. Roman Catholic, 73. Eastern Orthodox contains 78 books. By comparison, though, astoundingly, uh, the astoundingly reduced slave Bible contains only parts of 14 books. Now, why? Well, it's because slave owners had a dysfunctional relationship with Scripture. On the one hand, they knew that the Bible was good to give to slaves. It gave them a reason to live, a reason to work hard. They also used scripture as a sick justification for slavery. Look, we're leading them to Jesus. It must not be all that bad after all. So they gave them the Bible. But on the flip side, they had to edit most of it out. And you know why. I know why too, because in both Testaments, There is passage after passage about the dignity of all human beings and stories about the freedom of the slaves. We can't let that revolution start. So they gave them a redacted Bible. Didn't fit their cultural moment. They made their own. One more example. Uh, This is Romans chapter 16, verse 7. You may recognize it. It comes at the end of Romans. The Apostle Paul uh, writes this as he's greeting everyone on his way out of the letter. He says, Greet Andronicus and Junia. My relatives who were in prison with me, they're prominent among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Uh, Now, this passage is extremely important when it comes to the prominent role that women should play in church leadership. Because what we see here from the beginning in a highly patriarchal culture is a woman. Feminine word ending here, okay? It's a woman named Junia playing the role of an apostle. That is the very top of the early church org chart. And she wasn't just an apostle, according to Paul. She was prominent. She was exceptional among them. Astounding passage, right? Now, sadly, though, over subsequent generations, Junia's name was changed from feminine to masculine. She was changed by subsequent translators from Junia to Junius. Even though the most early manuscripts are feminine, Junia. They all have Junia. Even though the masculine name Junius didn't exist during this time, apparently a woman at that level of leadership was just not culturally palatable. So they created their own Bible. Now, look, this is what my two cents, this is what I believe. Before we ask if it's relevant or resonant to us, you know what we should ask? Is it true? Is it true? Because if something's true, then over time, ultimately, it will be relevant and resonant in all the right ways. And yet that's not what the human condition seems to be when it comes to Scripture. Big idea here. Every generation, and you've seen it, you've seen it today. Every generation edits, redacts, ignores, or downright dismisses Scripture because it lacks relevance or resonance to their cultural moment. And my challenge to us today would be, where are we? You and I doing that as well. Where are we doing that corporately as a church? Where are you doing that personally as a follower of Jesus? It's perhaps we're missing out on something even more beautiful if we embrace the whole thing. I'll close with Jesus before we transition into communion. You know that Jesus had the highest view of scripture, right? The highest. He didn't have the New Testament, obviously. His scripture were Hebrew scriptures. But uh, here's just a, a list of the way that he, 
he took scripture on. He was addressed as a teacher or a rabbi, scripture, 90 times. He taught the Hebrew scriptures. His mind was shaped by scripture. So many direct quotes and allusions from Jesus. Um, He interpreted the scriptures. He challenged others' interpretations of the scripture. He fought off temptation with the scripture. Uh, He honored all of scripture. He believed scripture was a source of life. He believed scripture to be inspired by the spirit. He deduced his identity, death, and resurrection from scripture. He believed the story of scripture was ultimately about him, and he taught that he was the fulfillment of scripture. Pretty high view, right? So for me, as a follower, as an apprentice, as a student, as a servant of King Jesus, as he believed, so I believe as well. So we believe, so we submit, so we surrender. And why? Jesus is why. Jesus is always why.